Let's go ahead and look through these then. Since the word God has no article in John 1, 1, the verse ought to be translated, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the, God, and the Word was a God. False. False. So what should it be? God was the Word. Right. Now, we actually have that. In, in Greek, the order is actually reversed. So God was the Word is actually the correct order. Um you could probably leave it just God, the word was God, would be an accurate translation, um, uh, drawing attention to the fact that the word and God share common properties and nature. Um, uh, but it, And it, it's at least remotely possible that it could be the word was godly, uh, but, but that's, that's, a, that's very unusual for this construction. Uh, so probably the word was God, or God was the word, is the best way to translate that. How should the Greek word monogenes be translated? One of a kind, God the one and only, unique, uh, but not only begotten. Uh, that seems to be uh, pretty much debunked as the uh, the translation. The phrase son of, son of God, son of man, means that something, ha- means something like having the qualities and exact nature of I didn't like the word exact. <laughs> true. That was a trick question. That's true. It was true. That that exact was actually okay. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the only yeah, that was yeah, well, a trick question. Well, yeah, those <laughs> true false questions. You're supposed to look for those extra words that don't need to be there. Well, it it, it, it actually that was works too there. Long. <laughs> and almost all my questions are are false. So <laughs> you haven't figured that one out yet. <laughs> I was never a good testator. <laughs> The doctrine of eternal generation is taught in all the early creeds. I didn't like the word all. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is a sort of a some jumps off the page at you. I don't know of one that doesn't. So, so, so it is true. As far as we but know. you just said all your questions are false. <laughs> yeah, no, almost all of them are. That's why I put false, because I, 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 I couldn't of, swear I to it. I think I've heard of one, so that's why I put false. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't I can't tell you one that doesn't. So that does seem to be a, a pretty much unanimous opinion of the early church, which is why it's hung on so, so tenaciously, even though I'm not sure the, the, the basis for the doctrine is there. The fact that it's in those early creeds, it's it's hard to just throw away something that's in those early creeds, yeah. So, uh, so that's that's part of our tension. Why why that difficulty continues? Now, why does the church, at least the churches I've gone to, not necessarily recite creed, any creeds? Well, that's a good question. Um, there's the problem that. The church faced the end of the 19th into the 20th century was not that they didn't have good creeds and good doctrinal statements, just that nobody believed them. Um, So all these churches had creeds and confessions. Sometimes they would even recite them in churches. But but nobody really believed them. And so the problem in the churches was dead orthodoxy. 
Okay, they, they, you know, all their paperwork is right, but nobody believed what their paperwork said, and so there, there, became, there came to be something of a distrust of them. those creeds. And they, they don't help you, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. I think that's probably an overreaction. I think creeds can do a lot uh, so long as we really believe them. I never said the process creed to a college. I never yeah. That's this. Do they? Do they? they do you ever do that? Any of that here? Uh, reciting of doctrinal statements, or that's since I've been here. Yeah. yeah, I think you have. With like a response type thing. I don't remember that. I, remember I mean, like three, maybe probably the, co- the, the covenant. Yeah, the church covenant, probably. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, it. It, it, the creeds became associated with dead orthodoxy and and ritualism, and so that that's one of the things that fundamentalism wanted to leave behind. And so, you know, it, in order to be authentic, you don't recite things; you you live things out. You yeah, put them in your own words and th- things like that. So, there has been this sort of reaction against creeds which I which I'm I'm a little I'm a little disappointed in because I think the creeds can be quite helpful in at least sort of setting up you know putting the rudder in place for uh, for uh, for sound doctrine but it is what it is yeah that first was it first Timothy 316 God was manifest in the flesh justified by the spirit is that the passage the, it's I'm not, not sure it's an exact verse. Yeah, I know but, the verse, um, but yes. People said that that was an early creed. Yes, almost certainly was. And pro- probably in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered of you what's first in importance, how Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again in the third. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a book, Carl Truman has a book out that he, he identifies as, as as many as ten creeds in the, in the scriptures. Probably uh, uh, Philippians 2 is another one. Uh, let this mind be in you, who being in the form of God thought it not uh, uh, yeah. thought not equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no probably was a probably was an early creed. Now, there's as many as ten of them, so it does seem like it was an early practice of the church uh, to 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 recite these summaries of doctrine. I think they can be very useful. I think uh, we've done the uh, Westminster's Confession. We've done that a few times, but. Uh, Maybe it's only calling out creeds. Was that? Maybe it's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, creeds, catechisms. I, I think they have their place. They do have their dangers, and I, th- I think that that's illustrated by those who treat them ritualistically or without thinking about them. That's the danger. It seems like some of the, I'm not talking about our church, or, but some of these big ones, sort of mega church. Uh, uh, they seem to say, like, well, again, I'm not your mother's, grandmother's church. Well, yeah, they're throwing that, they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Seems like it. And you also have that whole sentiment, uh, no creed but the Bible, that's out there too. You know, if you know, and some of them have used, uh, I know the Methodists had their big thing this week. Right, they did. It actually turned out the uh, right way. I didn't think yeah. it was going to happen that way. That was good. Probably because of the African Asian vote. Certainly was. Yeah. Okay. Any questions from last week here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
Okay, so we're on page 26, establishing here the deity of Christ. We've gone through several terms for God. God, Christ is called God. He's called Son of God. And then he's also, we went through a long discussion on that, and then he's also called Lord. Of course, we know that there's, from last semester, that there are actually two words for Lord in the Old Testament. There's Yahweh, which is the most common name for God. It's the covenant name for God. It's not shared with anyone else. That's his personal name. It's used about 6,000 times. And then there's another word. We're on page 26. Uh, so there's another word for Lord. Uh, usually shows up in your in your Bibles in, the, in an uncapitalized form here. Uh, whereas, and, and it's just sort of a general word that means master. Of course, in the New Testament, you don't you don't have that distinction. You just have one word, kurios, that covers both of those terms. And so, when you see it in Greek, you can't you can't tell whether it's a reference to Yahweh or just master. So, if the disciples say Lord, are they saying Yahweh or are they saying master? Um, and so sometimes it's very difficult to tell. But there are occasions uh, where I think we can uh, ascertain which one they're saying. Oftentimes they're quoting the Old Testament, for instance, and, and we can actually know which one they have in mind. And this becomes very important for us because the, the name Yahweh, Lord, with all caps, is not shared with any other being. No one is called Yahweh. It's that sacred name here, that tetragrammaton that's uh, that's held sacred by the Jews, and you know they don't even say it. They uh, they don't even put, and they, you know, we don't even have the vowel pointings because they don't say it unless they use it in vain. It's uh, very important to them. Uh, so this is the sacred name of God Himself that's shared with no one else, and it's applied to Jesus. Let's see if we can't establish this. Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. It says here, there's a voice calling in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord. Yahweh in the wilderness makes smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And that verse is quoted in each of the four Gospels, where the reference is clearly Christ. So the voice calling in the wilderness is whom? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. There's the preparing the way for our Lord, and clearly a reference to Jesus. So Jesus is called Lord Yahweh. Psalm 118, verse 25. Here's another Old Testament reference to Yahweh. O Lord, save us, we pray. It's almost certainly the term that undergirds the word Hosanna in the triumphal entry. Uh, So Hosanna, save us, we pray. Lord, save us, we pray. And also, perhaps, the disciples call for help elsewhere on the storm in, uh, in Galilee when Peter is about to drown as he's walking on the water. He calls, Lord, save me. So perhaps that's a... a re- I, I, maybe. I'm thinking he just calls out in desperation. He's probably not quoting a psalm here. Uh, he's just quote. Call, call, calling out in desperation to our Lord. But Psalm 119, 118, verse 25, seems to be a deliberate attempt by those who are who are greeting Jesus as he comes in on his triumphal entry. They're identifying him as Yahweh, as the Messiah. Matthew 4, 7, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament again, this time in the, in the, uh, uh, the temptation. 
Jesus answers Satan, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. Well, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, where he gets that from, and in in that reference, it's Yahweh. So don't put Yahweh to the test. Don't tempt me, because you're not supposed to tempt Yahweh. Implication, I'm Yahweh. So why don't they capitalize it in the text at that point? Well, yeah, because in the New Testament there is no distinction between the two. It's just kurios. So we don't they, see we won't see that in the New Testament, right? You don't see that. Yeah. In the New Testament. Are they following a convention that was set by the Septuagint? Then, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly where the pattern. You know, Bill would probably know the answer to that one. Where that all, that tradition of all all caps for Yahweh is, I'm guessing it's sort of in that whole tradition of. Of the you know the the tetragrammaton the four capital letters Yahweh, um, but using curios for Lord. Oh, well, that's just the that's just the Greek word for Lord. Yeah, but it's but it's generic. There's no there's no capital K capital U. Yeah, the same way the Septuagint did it. Right, the Sept. Oh yes, the Septuagint would have translated both Yahweh and Adonai as curios. As far as they didn't come up with like a transliteration or something else to identify it. Right, yeah, okay. Now I get your question. Matthew 7, 21 to 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus here not only assumes divine prerogatives of judgment. So people are going to come up to me in the last day and say, hey, I deserve a place in heaven. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell them leave. So, I mean, just, just that by itself is, uh, you know, accepting divine prerogatives. He's claiming to be God. But this phrase, Lord, Lord, is actually an interesting one, too. Uh, again, appealing to your Septuagint here. Um, when you see in Scripture, oftentimes you see Yahweh, Adonai together as a pair. It's normally translated in the NIV as Sovereign Lord. Okay, so uh, it could be translated Lord, Lord. Uh, but it's usually translated Sovereign Lord. But in the Septuagint, it would have been Kurias Kurias, Lord Lord. Okay, so so by saying Lord Lord, he's almost certainly making appeal to this Old Testament construction, Yahweh Adonai, and again, defining himself as Yahweh. <clears throat> Romans 10.9, very famous passage here, last stop on the Romans road, right? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. The same Lord is Lord over all and blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Note here Paul's argument. Jesus is the same Lord as the Jewish Lord, right? Firstly, the same Lord is Lord of all. The same Lord that is of the Jews, is now the Lord of the Gentiles. And then he quotes here, Joel 2.32, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, 
in the Old Testament will be saved. Okay? And so in order to be a Christian, you have to say, Jesus is Yahweh. Everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. You must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Yahweh. That's 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 necessary for one's salvation. Okay, not I mean, don't necessarily have to say those words in that exact way, of course. But but if someone denies that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, then there's no reason to think they're a believer. Philippians two, nine and ten, God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Well, right there is a an indication here of what it is. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, two factors. First, it's the name above all names, which is Yahweh. And then Paul makes an appeal here to Isaiah 45. Before me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear, and will say, in the Lord Yahweh alone are righteousness and strength. So again, here an appeal to Isaiah 45, where Yahweh is used. Hebrews 1 is a fairly straightforward one. Of the Son, the Father says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hand. Again, this is from Psalm 102. In this case, the name Lord is not actually used, but the reference throughout the psalm is Yahweh and Elohim. And we could add to this, a number of references to Christ's word as the word of the Lord, which is borrowed from the Old Testament. The synonymy with the day of Yahweh, with the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The identity of the crucified Lord and the Lord of glory, which is almost certainly to be thought of as Yahweh. And the synonymy between the mind of the Lord in Isaiah 40 and the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. So there's a very, very sound argument here that Jesus claims to be not only God, but even more specifically than that, he claims to be Yahweh. I think we've probably actually got more references where Jesus claims to be Yahweh than we have him claiming to be God, which is significant because Yahweh is the more precise term, Right? We also have a number of places where a generic Lord is used, which I think is still useful, even though it may not be Yahweh. Lord is still a name for God in the Old Testament. It's just not an exclusive name for God. Uh, Mary is told that there's going to be a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Again, the same context as this quotation of Joel 2. So, Then dozens of references to Jesus as Lord in the Gospels, and I just put a handful of those. There's just tons of them. Uh, over a hundred times in the epistles, all through the book of Acts, the Gospels. So he's called Lord generally. Uh, many of them probably have the sense of master, uh, but probably at least some of them probably will carry the sense of God as well. He's called the Holy One, which is a name used in the Old Testament only of Yahweh. The Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Obviously, Alpha and Omega is Greek, so it's not going to show up exactly like that in in Hebrew. But he's called the first and the last. 
uh, which is uh, what we find in Isaiah. Uh, uh, and so, so Alpha and Omega, first and last, probably share synonymy here. He's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation 17, 14. And we find that God is given that same name three times in the Old Testament, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then the series in Isaiah 9, 6, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there really can be no question in any of our minds here that Jesus claims to be God, and specifically the God of the Old Testament. Okay? It's probably fairly straightforward. Any questions? To Luke 2.11, mm-hmm. Savior who is Christ the Lord. Mm-hmm. We're not saying that says Yah equals the Yahweh. Well, I'm thinking it probably is, but there's nothing in the in the in the uh, in the Greek that clearly says that. But like I say, it, it almost certainly. But how do we know from the Greek? We don't. Oh, okay. I we mean, don't. Yeah, I guess remember, I was trying to say, how do you differentiate between here? Right, all, all all of them up till that point. So all of them, number you know, page twenty six into twenty seven. All of those are clearly Yahweh. Okay? okay, but there's also references to Jesus as Lord, where you can't necessarily tell the difference between Yahweh and Adonai. But that still Adonai is still a, a a name given to God. So it's it's not as though those are useless references. They're just not as ironclad as the as the Yahweh ones. That's all I'm saying. We also have divine attributes attributed to Jesus and works as well. And we'll, I think we can go through most of these fairly quickly. Hopefully we can get through much of this tonight. He's got aseity, that is independence, self-existence, Remember, we said last week we didn't think John 5.26 has anything to say to uh, Christ's self-existence. That doesn't mean he doesn't have it. It's just that he didn't. that's not what John 5.26 says. Rather, we affirm that Christ was in possession of this attribute from the beginning because he was God. We see this in John 1.4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So he has, he has life... You know, intrinsically that he can share. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I am the way, the truth, the life. Again, these attributes, remember I said last year, they're, 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 they're more nouns than they are adjectives. Uh, no one who comes to the Father except through me. And these text, texts indicate not only that Christ is living, which is a function of personality, but also is the source of life, both creation life and spiritual life. So he is the source of life uh, in that he created us. He's the source of spiritual life in that he redeemed us. So he's got life in himself. He's got infinity, incomprehensibility. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son has chosen to reveal to him. The riches of Christ in Ephesians 3 are described as unfathomable and his love surpasses knowledge. 
and in him are are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Obviously, we're we're talking about incomprehensibility uh, and and infathomability of God uh, because uh, of Jesus, because he is God. He's eternal. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. His goings forth, you know, Micah, of course, is indicating here he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but his goings forth have been of old, even from everlasting. John 8, 35, the sun remains forever, so all of these are attributes of God uh, reflected in eternity. Changelessness of the Son, the Father says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same because you're the creator. Your years will never end. And that statement here in that uh, rollicking old song there, right? Yesterday, today, you know that one? (laughs) So the the old guys here know that one, but maybe not. (laughs) You know know that one, Rich, don't you? It's, I'm not, not familiar with that. Okay. It's a, <laughs> a it's, no, 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 it's not a Beatles. <laughs> no, no, it, <laughs> I think it was a Mennonite song. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an old gospel song. That yesterday, today, forever, Jesus well, is the were, same. No. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like a Kobiak song. <laughs> it, yeah. it probably was. Oh, did you go to Kobiak? <laughs> only as a, only a men's retreat. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's a kid. But, okay, so nobody does know this song after all. So, but uh, nonetheless, the point is still the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, this leads to a question that uh, sort of we've we've sort of raised a couple of times already in this class, but let's raise it again here. How can the second person of the Trinity be called immutable if he becomes human? He wasn't human. Now he is human. Isn't that a change? Well, as we said above, Christ's incarnation is not a transmutation. He doesn't change from being God to being human, but rather an addition. So he adds humanity to himself. Uh, involving no change in his nature or essence. I mean, just the same as you might throw a coat on. It doesn't change your essence. You just added a coat to yourself. Now, it's probably it's a little more complex than that, but uh, but I think the, the analogy holds at least to the point we're making. This important distinction needs to be kept in mind as we discuss all of these attributes. The eternal second person of the triune God continues as he always has been. He's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient. In his divinity, his humanity does not participate in this and others of his divine perfections. We know that he grew, he developed, he aged, he died. This does not mean that God the second person relinquished those attributes God, the second person, did not grow and develop and age and die. And while we might say that God, in some sense, knows experimentally 
the absence of these attributes in his humanity. So, uh, I mean, there's one person, of course, that governs both natures, and so that one person understands through his humanity what it's like not to know something, uh, not to be everywhere. It's not as though this that means that God's second person was localized or or ignorant. Okay, and that, that, that and it's sort of a mind blowing kind of thing. But this this is this is we got to sort of get our, our minds around this for all of these attributes uh, because they're they are not always true of Christ in his humanity. Nonetheless, they are always true of Christ. The God man. Okay. So, um, one thing I was reading through the book and that kind of surprised me, I never thought about, is the author saying that Christ had to study and learn mm-hmm. learn the scripture. Yes. Which, I don't know, I'd always just assume that yeah. he knew it. Right. And anytime we, anytime we think that Jesus had a leg up on the people around him, we're thinking wrong. Uh, so he, he didn't he didn't he didn't learn any faster than anybody else. His ABCs didn't come any faster to him than he did to anybody else. I mean, it's hard to know whether he was a, a bright kid. He probably was a bright kid. I, but it wasn't as though he was super intelligent, more intelligent than anybody else out there. So when we see instances like when he knew that Philip was sitting under the tree, yeah. was he somehow tapping into something? Yes. Like, yeah, we'll yeah we'll get to that. Sometimes, <clears throat> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about we'll, we'll talk about the in the in the, uh, the 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 theanthropic person. That person can share as he wills with the human brain of Jesus, but that's not something he's obliged to do, and certainly not obliged to do on a broad scale. There are certain so it's it's possible for Jesus to say honestly. I don't know when I'm coming again. I don't know. Yes, uh, and, and that's—it's uh, not as though he's just be pious here. He's telling the truth. He doesn't know. That wasn't information that was in his brain. Uh, he never—he never had learned it. He couldn't have learned it. What about the uh, passage where he was in the temple and he amazed the, the teachers at his knowledge at such a young age? Yeah. Now, in that case. It, it it's hard to know whether he had some help along the way here. Remember, he's learning. You know, he's asking questions, inquiring. So I'm I'm inclined to think that he was learning along the way as well. Um, he, he, he might have been more devoted to the to the scriptures and the learning than the sure. Yeah, it's so. it's hard to know. It's not it's it's unlikely that he had just has a copy of it sitting around at home. I mean, these 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 scriptures were. Quite, quite scarce and quite, quite valuable. But, uh, but undoubtedly, he availed himself as much as he could. He would have learned the scriptures as well as he could and understood them. Uh, did he get some ex? Did he get some divine help along the way? It's always possible, but I, I, I hesitate to, to, to say that unless I get some good, clear indicators from the scriptures that that's the case. Well, I mean, being the um, second person in the Trinity, I mean, uh, the Holy Spirit gave um, direct um, to the apostles to be able to 
you know, recall. True, right. Scripture. But was the Holy Spirit doing that routinely with Jesus? I'm not sure that I, I would want to say that. It's, it's, it's not as though he can just tap into the Holy Spirit anytime he wants to and get a, any bit of information he wants. Because there are times he says, I don't know, and I'm sure he said that quite a bit when he was a kid. You know, what's two plus two? I can't remember. I don't know. But he was fully aware of that he was God and that he... It's hard to know when he became aware of He's about his father's business. Certainly by the time he gets to age 12, when he's in the temple, that's something that's that he that he's figured out whether this is something by revelation or just by reading the scriptures and it's like, wait a minute this is, that's me (laughs) you know uh, um, it's hard to know but but at some point that's hard to get my my (laughs) but he he has to learn I mean, so anytime you I think anytime we think that Jesus had sort of a leg up on everybody else that, you know, sword drills he always won them because, you know he just knew the whole Bible. You know, he had to he had to learn it the same way as anybody else. You know, because he was a carpenter's son, he probably wouldn't have been sent to school like Paul wants to study under Right. Somebody. Yeah, certainly didn't have the same level of formal education that undoubtedly he was getting some instruction along the way. There probably would have been a lo- local local priest or rabbi or something where he could where he could learn some things, but but uh yeah, he he had, he had to learn it, learn stuff the same way we do. So if Mary said, "Put your coat on, you'll catch a cold." He'd say, "No, you don't catch a virus not having a coat on." Well, no, he, he would <laughs> no, in that, no. In that case, he would have obeyed. Yeah, and he and he wouldn't have known. Anything, you know, viruses, bacteria. You know, you just don't know. They're microscopic. <laughs> What's a microscope? I don't. Know. <laughs> But I'm like, it's hard to understand. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, but yeah. So he wouldn't yes, have yeah, he wouldn't have had a, extraordinary insights, uh, advanced knowledge of of science and, and and such that he would have been able to outsmart all the all the kids at school. And he he learned the same way as the rest of them did. Yeah, but he couldn't sin though. Right, could sin, but not not knowing something isn't a sin. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise we we shortchange his humanity. I mean, we're we're all, we're dealing with his deity here, right? So we're trying to emphasize all the things that make him God, but we can't we can't we can't lose sight of the fact that he is at all points like as we are, and and that's one of the points. And the fact that he had to that he had to grow and learn. He, I mean, in that same context where it says that he was, you know, debating and answering questions with the, uh, with the, with the leaders, the, the, the religious leaders, same passage says he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. So obviously he's picking something up here. So. There are a lot of questions here we'd, we'd love to know. But I, but I think that's the one thing we sort of just keep in the back of your mind. If you've got this idea that he's got an advantage over, you know, all over the other kids, he doesn't. He doesn't have a sin nature, so he's not tempted internally. But but besides that, 
he's pretty much got every yeah. everything's the same because he's human. So to that point, does maybe he doesn't have the the corruption that sin nature causes in every aspect of? So he maybe he's like Adam was before the fall in some sense. Like his mind is not any in any way affected by. Well, sin see the, the the problem is well, it's not affected by sin, but but except indirectly. I mean, he gets his mind, his brain from Mary, so it's it's. It's affected by sin in in that indirect sense. His his mind. It's it's not as though he just had an absolutely perfectly brilliant mind that never made you know never made any mistakes, never had any recall issues or anything. It, it's just an ordinary brain, and he gets it by inheritance from mom. So undoubtedly, he was very diligent. He he studied hard and 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 such. He, yeah. The, these things would go to his character, but there's no advantage that he has, in, at least in terms of he gets, you know, and he's taking his test. Ah, I can't. Well, God tells me <laughs> he, gets, he gets he gets a gets a hundred gets hundreds in all his tests. I don't think that was where he was. <clears throat> so I say here. In his humanity, Christ suffered, experienced localization, impotence, ignorance. But it's but it is incorrect to predicate these of his deity. And we'll talk about this a little bit further because this becomes a rather important discussion for us. Point for us. <clears throat> Omnipresence, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst. Yeah, and obviously he's saying something about his presence. I'm going to be with all the churches everywhere, uh, and so he's he's recognizing that there is some sense in which he can speak of omnipresence of himself, even though in his humanity he's localized. He can say he's with every church that ever has been. Uh, uh, this, there's nothing more clear here than in Matthew 28. You know, I am going to leave, but I am with you always. <laughs> but ordinarily, we would think that's rather a paradox of a statement here. We've become accustomed to it because we've heard it so many times. But but think about it. I'm leaving. I'll be with you always. Uh, well, I'm leaving physically. My my humanity will be with you no longer. But it's not as though my omnipresent deity is gone. That's going to persist. It's going to remain. Again, as noted above, the Bible doesn't extend the attributes of deity to Christ's humanity. It's incorrect to maintain the omnipresence of Christ's body, as some Lutherans and others do, so that his presence is in, with, and under the communion wafer. Yeah, Luther had some rather... <laughs> nope. <laughs> <Not there. laughs> Uh, uh, Luther, for instance, had he didn't quite he didn't quite get away from every point of Romanism. I mean, really good start, but but there's some things that he just never quite broke broke with Romanism. This is one of them. There's there's a story. I, I read it. I had I had I had to do some study in Luther for my my dissertation. Uh, I read this one section. It was just. Had nothing to do with my dissertation, but it was interesting. And so I'm reading along, and it's it, that uh, uh, one of the one of the priests, after, after the 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 uh, the wine had been blessed, 
he was carrying it, and he tripped and fell, and 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 the and the, and the, the wine splashed on his on his clothing, and got on the wood floor, and and Luther was just devastated. They take the clothing, uh, they, they take all the clothing, they, t- they bundle it together, they burn it. Uh, they they take a plane and they plane the floor to get all the drops of of wine that had dropped. They gather it together and burn it. And he said, and they and they burn it all the while weeping. <laughs> so so he's he's got this this idea that there that there is something. It's not exactly transubstantiation, but it's something awfully close because the presence, the the, the real presence of Christ's. Physical body is there. That's that's incorrect. You know, all that say it's incorrect. Okay, it's Christ's divine aspect that is everywhere, not his body. In Shed's words, God's total presence in the man Christ Jesus does not prevent his total presence throughout the universe. So he's totally present in the man Christ Jesus. He's also totally present everywhere else in the whole of the universe with the whole of his being. Okay, and that's again that get that that is sort of mind-boggling to us. But don't imagine that God, the the second person of the Trinity, is is localized in Jesus and is nowhere else. He he remains everywhere else. He's just manifested in a, in a physical form in Jesus. Omniscience. Here's that reference that uh, um, was it you made, Rich? He knew saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. And, so John, but uh, anyway, I mean, <laughs> you got that verse right there. He knew what his disciples were right. thinking. So there's there are occasions here where that in, he gets. Extra information, supernatural information he could have not have had by any other means. Uh, he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree and says so. <laughs> he knew all men. He knew what was in every man. <clears throat> and, you know, we, we have this indication that he knew who would the non-elect were, John 6. He knew from the beginning who were going to believe and who were not going to believe. He also knew who was going to betray him from the beginning. So he's not from he, what is the beginning. Uh, you know, he, he apparently has this this revelation of specific data that's given to him. Like probably at the beginning of his ministry, probably not. You know, when he comes out of his birth, Judas is going to betray him. <laughs> uh, but uh, but from the beginning of his ministry here, he knew the lifestyle of the woman at the well. Of course, she's. She's overwhelmed by it, runs into town. I've met a man who knew everything about me. John 16, the disciples say, we know that you know all things. I think that's Thomas and... No, 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 that's Peter in John 21. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Remember, that's that's the passage. Um, so so here's, here, there are a lot of statements here that... Uh, Jesus knows all things. So, that brings us to this question, then, how can we say then, well, how can Jesus say then, that he doesn't know the time of his own coming back to earth again? Matthew 24, 36. I don't know neither neither the day nor the hour, only my Father who's in heaven. I say, again, this must be explained by understanding 
this union of human and divine in Christ. Christ is one person with two natures. Okay, so one person, a divine person, he's got a human nature, he's got a divine nature. Sometimes he works through the one, sometimes he works through the other, sometimes he can actually sort of bleed information from the one into the other, but they're never mixed. Okay, that's, that's something we need to keep in mind. His person was divine, but his human nature, including his physical brain, came from Mary. It accumulated information by means. Now, certainly the divine person fed certain data to Christ's human mind in a way that most humans don't experience. He knew things that the rest of us cannot know. Just like the prophets sometimes knew things that they just couldn't have known any other way than God put the information in their brains. Even here, however, Christ's human mind, at least during his first advent, did not receive all the knowledge known to God or all at once. This understanding alone can account for the fact that Jesus learned obedience, increased in wisdom. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 24 that he does not know when he's coming back, it's best explained by suggesting that the Logos, this divine person, had not yet placed specific information about the second coming into Jesus' physical brain. Here's what Shedd says. The Lagos in himself knew the time and the day of judgment, but he did not at a particular moment make that knowledge a part of the human consciousness of Jesus. Okay. So again, we have this, this same, same idea. It shows up in, in a great number of these attributes. Um, and here's here's another instance of it. Does that does that make sense? Does that follow? Does it seem like that knowledge didn't come to him until he started his ministry? I'm I'm inclined to think that you know when when John announces that he receives the Spirit without measure in John chapter four, uh, that this is an indication that at the baptism. Christ's public ministry begins uh, that the Holy Spirit comes and operates in him in a way he hadn't been previously. Much like the, much like the Spirit would have operated in the minds of the prophets, for instance. Only in a special way. He, um, it's, it's, there's this, there's this line, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's in John 4, if I'm correct. He says that he gives he gave to Jesus the spirit without measure or without limit. And if you go to First Peter, when it talks about the spiritual gifts, everyone has been given a gift according to the measure of the Holy Spirit. Same word. So we all get a little sliver of ability or gifting to function within the church. Jesus receives the spirit without measure, uh, implying that he receives, you know, every bit of the assistance uh, that the Holy Spirit can muster. It's not parceled out to to each of the individual members in the church. Jesus has it all subsumed within himself. So uh, that's how I understand that he, the, the Holy Spirit starts working. The, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Lagos, starts feeding information to Jesus at this time, but n- never all of the information. So would he have not known his purpose of coming until some point? 
I, I'm inclined to think that. Um, uh, yeah, there, you know, I've, I've been old, done a lot of reading. I can't remember who it was now, but I, I remember reading it. Some suggested that he figured it out by reading scriptures and putting two and two together that he was the Messiah, uh, but he didn't have any help doing it. Um, it's hard for me to say. I, I, I'm probably inclined to think that even before the baptism, he was probably getting a little bit of data fed to him. But again, it's it's hard to know. But he, but but we can say this: he didn't get everything. He doesn't get a, he doesn't get all the data put into his brain, even in his public ministry. Well, even as a young man, he said, uh, uh, "You know, I'm about my father's business." Yeah. So. And you have to realize, Mary knows. Right. You'd think Mary said something to him. So, so it's 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 not as though this is they're keeping it a secret from. (laughs) So, so I mean, it it could be as simple as that. You know, Mary tells him, "You're God." I mean, I don't know how she used that information. Hey, don't do that. You're God, you know. <laughs> but, 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 but undoubtedly, like, don't tell me. <laughs> but, but undoubtedly, she, 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 and Joseph are giving him some of this information. He might be reading certain information in Scripture, and so he, so there is a sense in which he could have figured these things out on his own, based on based on that just just that routine information. It's hard to know. So is it safe to say then that the second person, the Lagos, he's, it's not like he's controlling the body, the physical body of Jesus, but giving that person information, or that body information? Or I'm, I'm having a hard time with that. Well, yeah, that, that whole intersection of... of Mind and brain, right? There's there's an immaterial aspect to your mind, your soul, and then there's then there's your physical brain, right? Um, and so there's information that is coming into Jesus' humanity. It's part of that synaptic data bank that we all have. Um, but uh, sometimes God gives him information. Sometimes God doesn't. So you think uh, Satan was trying to exploit that when he was tempting him? Yeah, I'm inclined to think that after the baptism, Jesus has this, has a greater awareness, a greater consciousness of what's going on. And so when Satan starts to tempt him, he sees right through it. He knows he's the second Adam. And he knows that basically Satan's giving him the same temptations that he gave to Adam. That he sees right through. Mine's just blown. I've been thinking about this all along. <laughs> <laughs> I can be able to go to sleep tonight. It's yeah. like, <laughs> uh, I mean, what specific that he didn't? Well, that just the idea of the sec- second person of the Trinity operating and being still omniscient and omnipresent and everything and not localized in Jesus. Right. I mean, he, he was, but he's also everywhere else, right? Yeah. 
Okay. It gets it keeps going. <laughs> Omnipotence. He has the power to subject all things to himself, and he exhibits this throughout his ministry. He has supernatural power over nature, he calms storms, he heals diseases, throws out demons. He he is able to uh, you know address sin, overcome death, even his own death. So he's got clearly uh, some supernatural powers given to him. But we also find that he could not do mighty works in Nazareth because of their unbelief. We talked about this a little bit last semester here. I say this verse has been explained in multiple ways. Some suggest that Christ truly lacked the power to perform miracles in Nazareth, either because he's given up the independent use of his attributes and has no access to them, or the Lagos had not given to him the power at this particular point in time. He just, you know, just, you know, it's like the the, the levitation. It, it's it's not working. See, so the latter view is possible. It does follow our pattern of attributing Christ's deficiencies. I put them in quotation marks. His ignorance. You know, he doesn't know certain things to the hypostatic relationship of his two natures. However, we're also aware that Jesus possessed, during his earthly ministry, unlimited power that he chose not to employ. Remember Matthew 26? You know this song, right? He could have called 10,000 angels. You know that one? Okay, you got that. Okay, got that one down. Um, some of you don't. <laughs> but uh, he could have called 12 legions of angels. That was... That was within the scope of his power, but he doesn't because to do so would have would have thwarted uh, the divine plan. The fact that the stated reason offered here is unbelief suggests that another class of explanations is in view. Some suggest that God could cannot do mighty acts without human faith, but that's absurd. God can do whatever he wants to. Instead, this text likely tells us something about Christ's mission. His purpose in performing miracles was not to produce faith in those who did not believe. If that were the case, he would have done more miracles. You know, he would have redoubled his efforts to do as many miracles as possible. His purpose in performing miracles instead was rather to confirm and inform the faith of those who already did believe. That is, he's performing miracles in demonstration of the fact that he is the long-expected Messiah that believers were anticipating. And so he's giving them evidence to that fact by doing miracles that identify him as the Messiah. And to perform miracles in the context of unbelief would be a waste of divine energy. Doing miracles uh, among people who do not believe is just going to invite people to come up with excuses why not to continue to believe, or just to follow them around just to get their stomachs fed, uh, and, and for for and for for very uh, earthy kinds of reasons. Christ couldn't do miracles in Nazareth, not because he was impotent, but because he had to remain faithful to his mission. Okay, so I, I don't think this is a statement here that he just didn't have the power that day. Uh, but rather he wasn't going to use his power in that context because it would have been a, a, a waste of his energies, his divine energies. 
and a denial of his mission. Okay? Does that make sense? When we come into these moral attributes, uh, we, do, we don't have quite the same level of problems here because these the natural attributes is where we have all these problems. The moral attributes, we, we, we zip right through, right? He's holy. You disowned the holy and righteous one. In him there was no sin. Jesus is holy. We don't usually have a problem with that. Truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's love. He loves his own to the end. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's infinite. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. He's righteous. He's the righteous judge. He's faithful and true. He's mercy. According to his grace and great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. And then there's summaries of all the attributes that are attributed to Christ. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. All things that the Father has are mine. In him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So usually we don't have too much tension with the moral attributes. Um, it's the natural ones that give us the, the, the pause. Going back up in the box, there, it says yeah. his purpose in performing miracles was not to produce faith in those who did not believe, but rather to confirm and reform faith in those who believe. I thought it was that was to authenticate the gospel. Right. Because he did that among unbelievers, not... I mean, there might have been believers there. Yeah, well, well the purpose of the miracles and, and the continuing purpose of the miracles as you go into Acts is to is to corroborate that he's the Messiah. So so they, they corroborate who he is and the truth of his message. Um, and there was a group of people in Israel who are looking for the Messiah. They're faithful. They're, they're believers. They just aren't aware that the Messiah had come yet. And so here's the Messiah, and he says, I'm the Messiah, and naturally the response would be one of skepticism. Really? Prove it. Okay. Because there have been a lot of false messiahs. Right. There's, and it's, and it's a, particularly in that time, there were a ton of them going, going around. And so, so, so he, he says, "Okay, yeah, I'll do that. I'll prove it to you. I'll demonstrate that I am the Messiah and that my message is is real, it's bona fide." Okay, and so he does this by performing miracles, and they believe. But he doesn't go around like he doesn't see a blind guy sitting by the side of the road and just heal him. They always come to him. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, like for instance, you know, you know, the on the day of Pentecost, three thousand people get saved, and that swells to five thousand. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to blow here, I'm going to pop another bubble here. But my my inclination is is that this does not mean that there's three thousand people who never had believed God prior to this point now suddenly do. I'm inclined to think that these are Jews who are faithful Jews, read the Old Testament, know that Messiah is coming, are anticipating him, looking for him. Jesus shows up, and there's still a level of skepticism. But then he does the miracles. Peter makes this case that this was the Christ. And 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 the faithful among them say, you know, that's, yeah, that's right, that is. So I'm inclined to think that not all... Of those three thousand people were, you know, people who, 
you know, had never had any interest in God prior to that point. Yeah, I believe that too, because um, otherwise the church couldn't have grown as much as right. it did in terms of uh, appointing elders in the churches. Yeah, because mature, these mature were, people. Yeah, these yeah. were mature people that were able to step into those uh, positions. It's, and, 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 and so my point is when, when, when Jesus does these miracles and it says they believed, I'm, again, I'm seeing that in probably a, a lot of times in the very same sense. These are people who understand what the Bible says, are looking for the Messiah. He does a miracle, and the tingle goes up and down their neck, and they say, wow, this is the guy. <laughs> and so they believe. But it's not like a first-time belief. This is, you know, it's like a belief unto salvation. They were They were believers prior to that point. They just there was just specificity now given to their faith. It, like I say, it's informing and confirming their their faith. That's what I mean by that that statement. And so we find that Jesus, when he goes into context where people are 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 faithless, he stops doing miracles because the point of the miracles is not to compel faith in people who are absolutely resisting to him but rather to confirm and inform the faith of those who are believing what the Old Testament says but just need the specifics that he's the Messiah come to rescue them from their sins so like after the one of the miracles where he fed the 5,000 and then they asked for another sign and he refused to do it right yeah, yeah these people uh, honor me with their their lips, but their heart is far from me. They, they they follow me around in order to get their stomachs filled. He goes to the other side of the the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples frantic, "Hey, where are you? You're you're losing your crowd." And he said, "Well, that's not. I'm, I'm not trying to just feed a bunch of people. That's that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm I've, got, I've got something bigger going on than that. I don't don't ask me to waste my energies just going around feeding people." <laughs> I get something much bigger to do than that, no matter how hungry they are. So, yeah. So he's got all these attributes. But one last attribute I want to ask uh, ask a question here about, and that's the attribute of immortality. Is Christ immortal? Well, that's a that's a tough question, right? Because Jesus dies. God doesn't die, so okay. So how, how do we, how do we, how do we how do we how do this this one actually becomes even more complicated than the other ones? Okay, in that Christ is God, He is necessarily and immutably immortal. And while the second person of the Trinity may be said to have known through His humanity the pains and horrors of death, it's incorrect to suggest that the second person of the Trinity died as God. God the Son did not, for instance, cease to exist. He didn't face expulsion from the Trinity. He didn't experience the suspension of his attributes. He didn't endure even the loss of fellowship with the other members of the Trinity. To suggest any of these would really to be scuttle would be to scuttle God's attempt at atonement. In, indeed, it would mean the destruction of God himself. If, if God does not remain what he always has been, then what good is his death? Okay. As with all of the divine attributes, the Son of God as God retained the attribute of immortality 
despite the death of Jesus. Okay, again, this is perhaps even this is the most difficult of all here. So just as God retained the attribute of omnipresence, despite the fact that he's localized, and retained the attribute of omniscience, even though Jesus says, I don't know. Remember, remember, this is, remember Shed's summary statement here that we made earlier? God's total presence in the man Christ did not prevent his total presence throughout the universe. Okay? So same thing is said here. Just because there is a human death experienced by God in his humanity does not mean that God dies throughout the universe. Or that the second person of the Trinity dies throughout the universe, whatever that means. So I think this is easier. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Except when, well, the shell dies. when God turned his back on him on the cross, what happened? Okay, that well, that's coming. <laughs> well, it wasn't going to be tonight, but that's coming. Now I'm going to lay awake, Steve. Sorry. We're, we're going to be totally mush now. <laughs> um, but there is a... Did I give you? Did I give you any articles to read? No. no. Okay. Okay. I can send you an article on that if you want. Uh, it's getting. It's something I wrote. I'm getting it published this this spring. Uh, I'd like so, to. I'd like to send. Yeah, I can. I can send that around. Yeah. Send send me an email and I'll send you the article. So that way, that way I don't have to remember everything. <laughs> so. What do we call it? Ask for the article. It's what? Book the article. Yeah, there's the, the article on God forsaking. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll know what you mean. Okay, so just as the Son's localized presence in the man Christ Jesus in no way prevents his omnipresence throughout the universe, so also the death of the man Christ Jesus does not extinguish the Son's immortality throughout the universe. So while there's a sense in which the statement God died may be defended in that he understands death by experience through his humanity, I really hesitate to use the kind of language that God died. It's got a sort of sensational feel, and I think most people misunderstand it when they hear that language. It's not as though God the second person somehow was knocked out of the Trinity or or ceased to exist for three days while he's uh, so th- those things don't don't work okay and I will talk about this a little bit more and yet yeah, there's that article that I can I can send it to you kind of wonder what Satan was thinking at that time when, when you know if you know, he had won the battle I think he knows at that point when he says it is finished I think there's a realization that that's it, he he's done. yeah that there, there's no more atonement to be made after that point we'll talk about that one too <laughs> we have a lot to talk about yeah we do <laughs> <laughs> but we're actually we're actually keeping a decent pace I'm supposed to do seven and a half pages a night which means we're supposed to be to page 32 and a half so we're, we're actually pretty close we have so, a lot of questions. Right? So, just uh, expanding on your analogy, like, come, so if we say that God, God's humanity is living, and when He puts it on, it becomes part of God. So that when that dies, in that sense, you can say that God 
Well, it doesn't become part of God. I, 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 oh, yeah. I, we have to be very really careful with that language. But it, it's not as though his humanity becomes part of his divinity now. Mm-hmm. It, it it becomes part of the theanthropic person, but 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 don't don't mix them. Uh, the humanity and the divinity don't mix in Jesus. It's just that there's there's the Lagos who has two parts that that don't mix. Nonetheless, the, the one person is God. The Lagos is God. The person, remember, the person's imported from because it's been in existence for all eternity. And so the same person controls both natures. And so in that sense, God understands death through his through the human form. But to me, that's different than saying the second person of the Trinity died. And I think it's rather interesting that we never find in Scripture a statement that God died. Um, if, if that were the case, you know, and, and there's a fellow by the name of Jürgen Moltmann who says that's the centerpiece of Christianity, God died. And I, I look at that and I say, yeah, and, and the Bible never says it. That's that's the most important statement in, in all of Scripture, and it, the Scriptures never make the statement. It just is a little bit of a... Uh, uh, a question mark to me okay so God remains immortal even though Jesus dies just as God remains omnipresent even though Jesus is localized so again again this in, in many ways it's the same as the rest of the attributes but this one becomes rather uh, important to us because we, we need to talk carefully about what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. Uh, it's, it's pretty central to what Christianity is about. Okay? Uh, we, the next section will go fairly quickly, but uh, I don't think we have time to do anything uh, more tonight. So we'll, we'll finish this fairly quickly next time and then get started on Christ's humanity then. Okay? That's good. See you next week, Lord willing.